Adrian Plass has written a book called The Unlocking, published by the Bible Reading Fellowship. They have given us permission to broadcast his recordings, and we hear one of them now. A Job for Life When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, Feed my lambs. A second time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, Tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter felt hurt because he said to him the third time, Do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, Feed my sheep. Earlier on we heard how wretched Peter felt after his three predicted denials. And I was trying to express some of the pain that we experience in the process of accepting that we are completely known by God. Here, though, is the other side of the coin. In this famous post-breakfast dialogue, Jesus, in addition to knocking out those three denials like targets on a rifle range, is handing his friend a formidable pastoral responsibility. Later, Peter might well have reasoned as follows. Jesus was always straight with me. Too straight, I used to think. He called me Satan when I thought he'd be grateful. When I said I'd never desert him, he told me I'd deny him three times, and he was right. He knows everything. And now he's given me a job to do, even though he knows me from the bottom of my sandals to the top of my head. And that means he knows I can do it. And, as we all know, he did it. Pray with me. Lord, I get very confused and fearful about what I'm supposed to be doing and what I'm not supposed to be doing. Everyone seems to think something different about guidance and I end up in a sort of mist. Help me to think back to the last time I felt confident that you'd given me a task. Have I accomplished it? If I haven't, am I still working on it? Let's clear the decks and start again. anywhere we need never be 
A scientist who is interested in cancer and genetics. Kat explains the latest developments in cancer research. You can hear the full programme with Michael Barclay under Private Passions on BBC Sounds. Gone, thankfully, are the days when cancer couldn't even be mentioned, and just as well, since about half of us will develop cancer at some point. As the treatments and drugs improve, so does our knowledge of what causes it. All this is what makes the work of my guest today, Dr Kat Arney, so fascinating, and her latest award-winning book, Rebel Cell, Cancer, Evolution and the Science of Life, will completely change the way you think about cancer. After a PhD in genetics at Cambridge University, Kat Arney worked for 10 years as Science Communications Manager at Cancer Research UK, and then she left that job to go freelance, writing books and newspaper articles about science, broadcasting and podcasting. You may well have heard her recent Radio 4 series, Ingenious. Kat, as I said, you worked for 10 years at Cancer Research UK, and your most recent book is about cancer, uh, the disease we tend to associate with our modern lifestyles. So why do you think that assumption is perhaps wrong? We find examples of cancer across the entire animal kingdom, you know, birds, baboons, badgers, everywhere you look. Even incredibly simple organisms called hydra that live in the water, and they're little more than a tube with tentacles they can get cancer. And we find evidence of cancer in dinosaur fossils. And everywhere in human civilizations where we find remains, we can find evidence of cancer. And so, you know, it was actually realizing that this is a disease that's like deeply hardwired into the biology of life. And when you understand that and you appreciate it, then it takes you in a, a new way of thinking about this disease. And then also thinking about how it develops in the body, 
why it's difficult to treat and why we need some new strategies to approach it. So it was, it was a really interesting journey to go on writing the book, researching the book, talking to these amazing scientists around the world, putting it all together and then explaining it in words and examples and stories that people could really grasp. You may think that this next question is totally off the wall, so forgive me, but I've often wondered whether nature doesn't kind of build in some form of trying to keep uh, our numbers under control. And, and I sometimes wonder whether nature is almost playing a game with us. Well, there's an interesting idea that I do actually explore in the book of um, the sort of the adaptation in our species, because most cases of cancer do happen in people over the age of 60. And actually, it's relatively rare under that age. And it actually suggests that there is something protective in our younger years, in our reproductive years, as you're, you're raising your own children and, and then being a grandparent. But then... The evolutionary mechanisms that have evolved in our species over thousands and thousands and thousands of years, they've evolved to get us through those years, but then no longer. And it's, it's very sad, you know, as a woman kind of crashing through my 40s to feel that evolution is soon going to give up on me. So that's a really interesting opportunity to work out, well, what's protecting us in youth? What does keep us healthy? And how can we push that out and extend it into later years, where even, you know, 10, 15 years pushing cancer further and further out in our lifespan would really make a difference to people and to their families? So you wouldn't say if cancer is the result of inevitable genetic mutation brought on by age, that we should all drink what we want, eat what we want and stop going to the gym? Well, no, of course not, because, you know, it is something that you can increase the risk of. It's something you can decrease the risk of. What you want to do is not add to your mutational burden as you go through life. So don't do things that we know damage your DNA, damage your cells. And also then do actively do things that we know keep our tissues healthy, like exercising, like, you know, eating healthy foods and, and you know, trying to live a healthy lifestyle. And all of that does help to push this disease further and further out by keeping your tissues healthy and keeping your cells healthy and avoiding adding to your mutation. So certainly, you know, don't just give up and, you know, hit the fags and, and the sofa because there's a lot you can do to, to try and uh, reduce your risk of cancer through your lifetime. You're not really a fan of more and more cancer screening, are you? I think it is really important when you're screening people for cancer that we understand that, yes, it can detect cancers early, but it can also detect, you know, sort of pre-cancers or early cancers that actually wouldn't cause a problem in people's lifetimes. So as well as, you know, more cancer screening, and there's all sorts of exciting things coming through, like blood tests that can detect multiple different types of cancer, potentially, we really need that to go hand in hand with making sure that we've got further tests to figure out like what are the dangerous cancers that we should find and treat and what actually it's like okay this is the sort of the, the lumps and bumps of life that we should just be keeping an eye on rather than actively treating. I mentioned uh, Kat Arnie, at the beginning that you set out to be a research scientist. Uh, why did you abandon that ambition? It turns out I'm really clumsy and I've got a really short attention span. So, <laughs> so uh, working in a lab didn't really work out for me. And so for me, I was always fascinated by the science, but actually doing it was really difficult. And uh, yeah, I'm much happier now talking about science than, than doing it for sure. Your father, Colin, also made a pretty dramatic career change when you were a teenager. He went from city banker to music teacher. Uh, was that an example, do you think, that possibly played into your reckoning? Yeah, so this was a really big time in my life because I was just about to go to university and my dad 
he'd gone from university straight into a city bank and after sort of 20, 23 years there, realised that this was never what he wanted to do. He is a very talented linguist, a very talented musician. And he was like, well, I always wanted to be a teacher. And my father <laughs> said I can never be a teacher. And so he retrained as a teacher. But it did mean, basically, he had three daughters. I'm about to go off to university. My sisters are, are teenagers. And kind of came home and told mum that he'd quit. And that was a, it was a really big thing for the family. It was a really big thing for him. And the more I step back, the more I admire him more for the way that he made that choice and, and then has gone on to be, he was an incredibly successful music teacher and a lot happier for it. Is this next choice, the Brahms Rhapsody in G minor, for in particular a family member? Yeah, this is for my dad. So I'm sure anyone who's a musician here, you've got the piece that you can play, but you can only play like the first eight bars of it. <laughs> and this is a piece I remember from my childhood. So my dad can play the first eight bars of this and it's yeah it's such an impressive piece it's wonderful I saw him at the weekend and I said I was going to choose this piece and he's like no I can play 40 bars of it (laughs) but you know we've all got that piece and and this one really reminds me of him and and his talent as a musician well you've asked to hear Martha Agrik her debut recital actually in Germany in 1960 and I'm glad to say that she manages more than both eight and 40 bars. What is it you like about her performance? I just think when I I listen to a few and this one sort of captures the vibe of it Um, and also I quite like the German connection so my grandmother dad's mother was German and and she married an Englishman and they actually you know got one of the last boats out of Hamburg before the start of the Second World War and so we've always felt this sort of deep connection to Germany and uh, and I thought that was sort of a nice little connection as well with dad. Marta Argerich with the Rhapsody in G minor by Brahms, a recording from 1960. Kat, your book about genetics has a really intriguing title, Herding Hemingway's Cats. Explain. (laughs) So the Hemingway cats, there are the cats with six toes. So these are cats with thumbs. They're sometimes called mitten cats or thumb cats. And there's a whole kind of clouder of them that live on Ernest Hemingway's estate down in Florida. And I first encountered them when I was at a scientific conference at the Royal Society in London. And I was listening to a researcher from Edinburgh who works on these cats talking about the genetic changes that cause these cats to have thumbs. When you see a cat with a you know, thumb, you think, well, what has gone on there? Is it a mutation in a toe gene? What, what is it? And realising that it was not the gene itself. It's a, a piece of DNA that's basically a control switch that turns a gene on. And it's just miles and miles away from the gene itself. And realising how little we really understand about how genes 
actually work and and certainly in the public domain very little talked about it I was like right I think I'm going to write a book about how our genes actually work and went around the world talked to all these amazing scientists turns out it's really complicated and they were all pretty much like well when you find out let me know Uh, but it was a wonderful opportunity to really dig into what we understand about how our genes work why these cats have thumbs um, and all sorts of wonderful stories like that. That brings me very nicely to a question I've often wondered about, which is the whole debate about nature versus nurture. Uh, Given what you've been talking about, I suspect I know what you feel about this, but how much of our lives uh, do we now think are predetermined by our genes? It's impossible to separate them. The nature versus nurture thing is something that always comes up and every geneticist worth their salt will just go, it's nature and nurture. You can't separate the genes from the organism that they're in. You can't separate the genes and the organisms from the species and you can't separate the species from the environment that they live in. You know, it's all about how our genes make us who we are and then how we interact with the environment around us. You know, it's absolutely impossible to, to separate them all and uh, and it certainly does make the science of, of genetics and biology quite challenging but it's definitely uh, nature and nurture not versus or either
Larry Gentis has produced a series of talks where he imagines himself to be a Bible character. Today he looks at some of the problems Moses faced when trying to lead the people of Israel into the Promised Land. Well, fighting against God is not wise, but we'll get to that later. Continuing our journey after the Amalekites and Canaanites pushed us back after the spies returned, the Lord gave us a set of laws. These laws taught us to live a life of faith in Him instead of relying on ourselves. There was a thanksgiving sacrifice when we entered a new land, and laws for how to treat foreigners when they dwelt in the land alongside us. Then God gave us a law about unintentional sins and how to atone for them. He made a distinction between sins we were unaware of and defiant sins when we knew what we were doing. God was especially firm about the Sabbath day. He wanted this day to be holy, putting everything aside pertaining to work. Then a man was brought before us because he was gathering wood on the Sabbath day. When I sought the Lord concerning him, God said to execute him with stones. My first thought was that that was really harsh. I realized, however, that God sees the heart of a person, and I don't. The entire congregation participated in stoning him as one man. Well, then that tells me something. Even though I don't understand it, God does. Well, after the rebellion of Miriam and Aaron, I hoped we wouldn't have to cross that bridge again. But soon after, it happened again. In leadership, there's always someone who will try to bring you down. Most of them don't even have much of a plan what they'll do if they take my place. All they're interested in is getting power. They don't care how they do it. It's never wise to go against someone God has placed in authority because you find yourself fighting against God himself. Hmm, it doesn't take a scholar to see who's going to win that one. A man named Korah rose up together with 250 other leaders and confronted Aaron and myself, saying, You've gone far enough, for all the congregation are holy, every one of them, and the Lord is in their midst. So why do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of the Lord? Well, I listened with horror, and I realized the enormity of what they were about to suffer. So I fell upon my face in front of the Lord, after which I replied to them, Tomorrow morning the Lord will show who is his and who is holy, and will bring him near to himself even the one whom he will choose. Do this. Take censers for yourselves, Korah, and all your company, and put fire in them. Lay incense upon them in the presence of the Lord tomorrow, and the man whom the Lord chooses shall be the one who is holy. You have gone far enough, you sons of Levi. The next morning they assembled at the doorway of the tent of meeting. In their hearing I implored the Lord, Do not regard their offering. I have not taken a single donkey from them, nor have I done harm to any of them. Then each one put fire in their senses. Suddenly the glory of the Lord appeared to the entire congregation. He spoke to Aaron and me, saying, Speak to the congregation and tell them to get back from around the dwellings of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. I warned the congregation then to separate themselves from Korah and all who followed him, and not to touch anything belonging to them, declaring, By this you shall know that the Lord has sent me to do all these deeds, for this is not my doing. If these men die the death of all men, or if they suffer the fate of all men, then the Lord has not sent me. But if the Lord brings about an entirely new thing, and the ground opens its mouth, 
and swallows them up with all that is theirs, and they descend alive into Sheol, then you will understand that these men have spurned the Lord. At that moment the ground split open, exposing a deep chasm. Suddenly the ground rose and fell, swallowing up all the men who were with Korah and their households, swallowed alive and buried, and they perished from the midst of the assembly. There were a few moments of terrified silence. And then all the Israelites around them fled in panic. Fire also came out of the ground and consumed the 250 men holding their senses. It was horrific to see the total annihilation. The worst part were the screams of these men's households, the women and the children disappearing under tons of earth and rock. I wish these men had considered that their rebellion and sin wasn't against me, but against the Lord. Aside from themselves, their families died because of this. The most important task of a man is to lead his family. And this was where they led theirs. There is always someone who will try to bring you down when you lead. They don't even have a plan if they do take over. All they're interested in is power, and they don't care how they get it. It's never wise to go against someone God has placed in authority. Because you find yourself fighting against God himself. And that's a bad battle to fight. This comes from the Holy Bible in the book of Numbers, chapters 15 and 16. If I have wounded some poor soul today If I have caused one foot to go astray If I have walked in my own willful way Dear Lord If I have turned aside from want or pain, lest I offend some other through the strain, dear Lord, Guide 